0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit stonegate-church.com. I'm just staying right in Philemon. We're actually going to start in the back half of Philemon. If you were expecting to hear a sermon in Exodus uh, that was sent out in the city, you were probably expecting to see Rodney up here, um, and I was expecting to hear a sermon in Exodus and also see Rodney up here. Until about three o'clock this morning, um, which he had warned me about midnight. He's like, ah, fifty-fifty. Look over a few things, but I know Rodney. Man, he's zealous. He's going to be here if he can. Uh, but he had to take Laura actually to the ER um, last night. She was having some stomach pain. She checked out okay, um, and I, I I don't know what it is, but Rodney got really really sick. And so after he dropped off his kids to our house and we kept them last night, uh, he dropped off preaching to our house also, um, and uh, I, I'm. I'm really excited to be up here. I thought about just getting up here and saying, what, what do you guys want to talk about? Um, <laughs> let's bring Kevin back out. Let's worship a little bit longer. But um, but as thinking about communion and looking through some uh, some sermons I've done, um, I had done a series in Philemon, and it's obviously a very short book because we read it on one page. Um, and that's even if you have big printing because you can't see very well. Uh, but it was broken up in several, and so I kind of adapted this to kind of come in, because we really want to identify, when we come to communion, there's some things that have to come to the very top. When we come to the Lord's table, what has to come to the top is relationship and forgiveness. Relationship and forgiveness are absolutely essential every time we step up. To take the Lord's Supper, that we celebrate a relationship in Jesus Christ that is the forgiveness of our sins and adopting us into His family because of the broken body that's represented in the, in, in the bread and the spilt blood that's represented in the grape juice. And so, as I kind of looked, I, I mean, I just, I was looking at sermon after sermon. No, no, no. I had opened up about five and I was like, maybes. And so, I had those last night. And so then about midnight where he said, well, it's maybe, I don't know, if we get sent home, uh, I'll preach. If we don't, you preach. But you might want to kind of relate it to uh, communion. I then took those five off the desktop. And so we started over. And uh, here we are in Philemon. And we're really going to pick up in verse 15. And we're going to focus on this, how God uses relationships and loss for his perfect plan. A lot of commentators, when you come to Philemon, what you see is it really kind of centers around Onesimus and his new status. But I feel like the letter really points to we're asking Philemon because of his status in Christ and because of Onesimus' new status in Christ, a new creature, he's asking Philemon, because of relationship with Jesus and now relationship with your new brother in Jesus, I'm asking you to lose... And I don't do well with losing. I don't like to lose. But there are times when, if you looked at all the evidence and you look at everything on the table, it makes sense for you to win. Everyone would look at it and say, You should win. The way you're thinking makes absolute sense. It's right. But because of the gospel, it is right to lose. It's where we find out what is the true worth of a relationship. I am um, in Oklahoma. We took uh, kids to camp at Falls Creek, which, if you've never been to Falls Creek, it's kind of a phenomenon. Um, like 20,000 students ascend to one place in kind of southern Oklahoma that is not really suitable to sustain life, but we all ascend there. And uh, some things have held on for 60 years. Uh, some traditions have held on for year after year after year. And one of those traditions is softball. And so softball takes the competitiveness to a whole new level at church camp. And there's some things they do very, very wrong with softball. First off, they mix guys and girls to play softball together. It's co-ed softball. And right there, you're like, oh, you're being sexist. No, I'm talking for the guy's sake. There is something that happens when you take a girl softball player, a competitive girl softball player, and you put her with a bunch of boys who may or probably are baseball players. There is something that happens in her where she will kill everyone. There is a competitiveness that raises to the top. And then within this Christian culture of camp, there is a thought that there should be a level of competitiveness, but it always far supersedes what you think. And to make matters far, far worse, they overemphasize the Christian nature in people. And they say, call your own plays. Horrible idea. So we start off the week and we have this close call, this close game, and over on third base, there's a slide in the base and a catch right at there. And the youth minister from the other team who is pitching to his team looks at one of my students and says, You make the call. And he says, Well, I think he's out. And then he says, No, he's not out. And I'm like, I'm like, this is not going good. And so there's all this mummering and scrimmage. So it kind of got died down because the next day it was all rained out. And so we were in the winner's bracket, but we lost a day of play. And so what happened to the bracket was we didn't just have to win. We had to win by a certain point spread or we're out of the tournament. And so we're playing the game, and it comes to the last inning. And we're in the field. And I've got to be really careful to explain this because I really messed it up. I, I, I played baseball until the fifth grade. It was a horrible experience. And so I don't know how people keep score. And so anyways, so here we are. And so it's the last inning, we're fielding, we don't bat again, we're ahead by three, but we have to win by five or more or we lose. And so we have a little huddle, we get together and we say, what we have to do, we have to let them tie the game. We have to let them get three runs and only three runs, so let's get two out and then we're going to let three people run in and then we have to have a huge inning and get five or more runs. And so we have this plan. We go out up first two outs now. A girl comes up to bat, and so they pitch it in. She hits it just past shortstop, and she runs and she gets to first place. Or first first base. First place later. First base. And what happens is we all start yelling at her to run on to second. And so usually the coach might do that or your players might do that, but the opposing team, if you yell at them, no, go to second, it comes out like you're mocking her. And so to help her run to second, Bobby, one of my students, picks up the base or the softball and throws it to outfield. And we're yelling, run. Well, she's a competitive softball player. She thinks we're making fun of her. She starts to cry. At the point that she starts to cry, all the guys on her team do what they have to do, and so they come out with baseball bats. And so all this is that we go over, we send delegations for peace, and we try to tell, hey, listen, if we beat you just by three, we really lose, so we have to beat you by five, so we have to let you tie it up. This has to happen so we can be winners. And all they hear is, you have to be super big losers so we can be winners. And so it's just unrest. People are crying. People are upset. People want to fight each other. And so I I get my team together and I say, hey, the next the next ball is an out. It's an out. And there's a bunch of whining, complaining. And they're saying, if you look at all the legalistic, if you look at what we're trying to do, why we're trying to do it, it is well within our rights to do this. But the right thing to do was to lose. And so the pitch comes in, it's a pop fly, and one of my students' named Carson. He catches it, and everyone just walks off the field. And I was so proud of him. I was so proud of him. Because the right thing to do was to suffer loss. And so when we start off in verse 15, what we're going to see from 15 all the way through the end of the chapter, or the end of the book, is this. God uses relationships and our personal loss. God uses relationships and loss for his perfect plan of redemption to unfold. And so look at verse 15. Paul writes, perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while is that you might have him back for good. And and so right there, we get hung up and we want to know why was he separated? Why did he run away? Did he steal lots of money? And Paul never goes into explanation, but later he says, if he owes you anything, I will repay it. But he says, perhaps this happened for good. In verse 16, he says, no longer a slave, but better than a slave, a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dear to you. As we're reading this, you would want to circle all this talk, all the words used to describe relationship. It goes on, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he's done any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this in my own hand. I will pay it back. I will pay it back. And so what we see is a lot of relationship, but we see God had purpose in Philemon's loss. And so we want to center it around this. God had purpose in Philemon taking loss. And I would say God has purpose sometimes in us taking loss. But let's look at this. And so... We, we see this, the first thing, and it's questions. Some questions are going to pull out, we're going to try to answer it. Are temporary losses worth eternal gains? Are temporary losses worth eternal gains? And if you have any knowledge of the Scriptures, you would say yes. But if you've read this at all, you would say yes. And so look at verse 15, it says, Perhaps the reason why he was separated from you for a little while. In the Greek, it literally says this, Pros oron, which means for an hour. A small momentary time. And so he uses words to describe this is very small, but he juxtaposes that to something that's very great. So he says, perhaps it's worth that it. you're separated for an hour or so, was that you might have him back for good, is what this translation says, but it might say this, for eternity. Because the word that's used to describe there is where we get the word eon. And so he says on one side, there is loss that is mounting and it hurts now, but it's only for an hour. It's momentary. It's temporal. It doesn't last that long. On the other side, you now have him back forever. And so he says the pain that you're feeling now, the pain that this will bring will be slight and momentary compared to the great gain that you get. And so if we if it's hard to accept that, and you say, it's hard for me to think about eternity and forever and forever and forever, let's just start with lifetime. And we look across the room, and so when we say old around here, we have to say like 50, because um, it's a young group. But when we look at this, I just want to know, isn't time, I mean, isn't it subjective depending on how old you are? I mean, when you were a kid and you had your birthday, didn't it seem like it took 30 years for your next birthday to come? And if you were a kid and you had a birthday in December and you got gypped because they just said, hey, here's your present for her birthday and here's Christmas, which is going to happen to our youngest daughter because her birthday is on the 22nd of December. We're going to gyp her. I mean, just financially, that's what's going to happen. It's going to be good for her. And so she can't even look forward to Christmas. You know, it's about halfway. I mean, she has to look for the whole year. And when she's young, it's going to feel like an eternity. But now, let's say you're, I don't know, 30, 40 years old. How quick does that next birthday come? I mean, just when you feel, just when you feel like you can tell someone, I'm 33, which scares me. Because Jesus died at the age of 33. I have no no example for how to live the rest of my life. (laughs) And so it's terrifying. But just when I get used to telling someone I'm 33, I'm 34. I mean, it goes so fast. It's something that is subjective that we sense even in our own time. I mean, right now, Quinn's about to have a birthday in July, and she is all about birthday. She is all about her birthday. And I mean, when we say, oh, it's coming up in just you know a few weeks, she hears it's coming up this afternoon. And then she just looks at it with just disgust the rest of the day when it doesn't happen. I mean, she, time is it's subjective. I mean, okay, how about this? It's subjective in nature like snow days are subjective in nature. Like, okay, in Kansas City where we were, they would go to school when there's like two feet of snow on the ground. Here, if there's a dusting, it is like the Yeti, a snowman is out there decapitating children and everyone must run to safety in their house. And so when snow days happen here, how excited are your kids? How excited are they for snow days? How do you feel about snow days? You freak out. Because you're trying to figure out how to go to work. Because you can't leave them at home. Because you know your son will burn the house down if you leave him there. And so you're trying to figure it out. And so these things are subjective in nature. And so he says there is a momentary of loss that you are going to feel. But there is an eternity of joy that is gained. And so he jumps to that, and he says, it's subjective. Or how about for those who are older in the room, our, our oldest population, if you're visiting and you look around and you say, I'm the oldest person in here, we need you, stick around, we need you. Um, but if you look at that, when you think in terms of like one year, three years, ten years, doesn't that seem a whole lot quicker than it used to? My grandma Joy, uh, she's she's gone on to be with the Lord now. Um, and as she got older, she was the most one of the most gracious old ladies. I mean, she's just a beautiful lady. And she just really encapsulated her name. She was always full of joy. But at the end of her life, man, she couldn't remember anything. I mean, she could remember like, Long ago stuff, but like, I mean, what she had for breakfast, that's an impossibility. If she had breakfast, impossibility, which she put some weight on, because I think she forgot about some breakfasts a few times. Uh, But she couldn't remember anything. And so we were visiting, and we had Quinn, who was between six months and a year I'm really bad with time. I mean, she might have been three years old. I don't know. Okay, so it was close, and we were there, and she kept looking, and this is before she passed on, and she would kind of forget, and she'd say, whose baby is this? And we'd be like, Grandma, that's our baby. And Kenzie and I were in there, and she kind of give us a funny look. It's like, ah, she just forgot. No big deal. Five minutes would go by, and she'd be like, whose baby is this? And we'd do the whole thing again, she kind of give me a funny look, but that's our baby. All of a sudden, I realized, she doesn't remember that Kenzie and I are married, She forgot the wedding that happened six years ago. And so, next time, five minutes later, she's like, whose baby is this? Like, grandma, that's our baby, your great granddaughter, and we've been married for six years. Her look was totally different. She was like, oh, that's great. She had forgotten. She had forgotten. And when you look at her perspective, I mean, pushing 90, six years, dropping the bucket. It's easy to forget that. But she had forgotten. And so Paul, he says, there's a loss that can happen that can be momentarily for a gain that is eternal. And so we answer the question, is momentary loss worth eternal gain? And the resounding answer is yes. Yes, Philemon, your loss now is worth gain. Paul echoes these things in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says this, he says, therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, for what is unseen is eternal. It makes sense now that at the end of his life, he is looking at his friend Philemon and he's saying, listen, you've got to take your eyes off the here and now and you've got to raise them to what is unseen. An eternity that holds us. Your slave who cheated you is now your brother. And you'll be with him forever. And so, yes, momentary loss is worth eternal gain. The second question is this. Are people worth more than title and usefulness? Are people worth more than title and usefulness? And the resounding answer of being created in God's image is yes. Because they're created in God's image and they have a soul, they're worth more than their usefulness to us. Look in verse 16. He describes him like this. He is no longer a slave, but better than a slave. He is a dear brother. And so he says, although he was useful to you and he had a title and he served you at one time, even though he may not serve you now, may not ever serve you again, he is of far more use because he is now a brother in Christ. Look at the relationship imagery. The relationship so verse 10, if we back up uh, to previous where we started, it says, I appeal to you for my, what does it say? My son. Before we even learn Onesimus' name, we see a title that goes with it that is a family relationship. He says, He is my son. And so the background of the picture that happens is at some point, Onesimus ran away from Philemon, probably stole money from him. There was social shame that came on Philemon. He was a wanted man by the law. But when he got to Rome, one of the largest cities of the ancient world, expecting to be far away from anything that was his master, he came across Paul. A prisoner. And through the relationship that he had with Paul, he found Jesus Christ. And now he describes, when Paul says things about Onesimus, he speaks of him as my son. As my son. Now, family relationships, it it changes things. I mean, when you think about, I mean, parents in the room... Have you ever calculated how much people who carry the title son or daughter have cost you? If you haven't, don't do it. Bitterness is a problem. They cost a great deal. Kids in the room. You need to realize that you cost your parents a great amount. There is a financial loss that they are driving a minivan that everyone is embarrassed to have because of you. Without you, they could have a Ferrari. And so there is a loss that happens to cost someone son or daughter. When you, when you think about that, and by the way, if you're like, man, I'd rather have a Ferrari than my kids. Listen, your Ferrari can't take care of you when you're old, all right? So, kids are a better deal. But when you calculate that loss, when the, the title son and daughter comes in, family ties, they, they affect the way you will cover for someone. They affect it. I mean, the way you'll defend your brother or your sister whether they're right or wrong, is different than the way you defend a stranger. They cover It's different. You see it all through life. Uh, one of our good friends, he, um, they're, they're old enough to be our parents. We, when we think of marriage, we think of Barbara and Kendall Johnson as just an example of some things we want. They're just dear, dear friends to us. They had two kids, uh, um, a daughter and, and a son and it was so funny because at one time we're over at their house waiting waiting to eat dinner and uh, they used quicken to do finances and the little pie chart was up with you know labels and it's color-coded you know of what utilities cost how much of the pie it takes of what saving is how much of the pie it takes and they had two little pieces of pie and one was the daughter's name and it was a pink slice and it was huge it was big in relationship to a lot of other things but especially big in relationship to his pie, which was very small. And he just got bent out of shape about it. Because he's looking at the family assets. He says, All of this is going pink and none of it is going blue. You owe me money. And so he's looking at how it's descending, you know, it's coming down. And he says, The blue is much smaller than the pink. You owe me money. I quickly pointed out, But the debt that you owe them because of your annoyingness far outweighs the pink piece of pie. <laughs> far outweighs it. But it always comes at a cost. When, when Paul, when he talked about Onesimus, he said, my son. There is a family relationship that exists in the church that is brother and sister and that when you lead someone to Christ, there's almost a spiritual, this relationship that happens. And one way we try to celebrate this relationship is in Baptism. That if someone has accepted Christ, and they are now counted in land books of life, if they will now go to heaven, and they're showing that through symbolic baptism, we have open baptism, meaning if someone was influential in that relationship, that they can baptize you, they can request you and you baptize them, to show this type of relationship. To show that they said, I saw Jesus because of the actions and the words in your life. And I want to honor that. And so when Paul talks about Onesimus, he says he came to faith because of this. And I love him like a son. And it's a tight bond. And so he writes to his friend, Philemon, and he says, because of this tight bond, will you forgive him? He's no longer just machinery. He's no longer for your usefulness. He has a soul. And now he has a redeemed soul. Are there people in your life that, that you, you think of them like that? The church brings that. The next question that we see, or actually look at verse 10. We don't just see it with family bonds. We also see it with shared bonds. And so verse 10 goes on and says, He who became my son while I was in chains... So they shared this intense experience and it bonded them together. And you don't have to go very far until you talk to a veteran of war that when they talk about people that they were on mission with, that they served with, that they had life and death before them, when they talk about that shared relationship, it elevates it to like a family setting. I mean, isn't that true? I mean, you can have a war buddy... That he can be of a different political party, a different socioeconomic class, a different race, a completely different background. He can be all of those different things, but there is something that is so much more weighty. An experience that happened that is so much more powerful that it stands and outweighs everything that would be different. We depended upon each other for our lives. and When my grandpa would come across someone who was in World War II... It didn't matter if He knew them. It didn't matter which way they voted. It didn't matter what they looked like. It didn't matter what they did for a living because they had a common tie that was more weighty than any political party or any social class could ever be. How much more true is that when our common tie is we were utterly sinful, deserving hell, and Jesus, who saw our infinite sin covered it with His infinite love and tied us together. That should mean in the church, you can be around someone who looks very, very different from you. You can be around someone who thinks about things when it comes to politics. Very, very different from you. You can be around someone, if you're very educated, who is very uneducated. You can be around someone where there is a language barrier, it's hard to communicate, but you instantly bond when you talk about Jesus because that experience is far more weighty than any other life experience experience and so when i mentioned if you're the oldest person in the room and you're visiting we need you if you look different than everyone else in the room we need you and we have a bond of christ and it's so interesting that he says later on he says because we're partners And so when we see, are people worth more than title and usefulness? Yes, he shows family ties within the faith. Yes, he shows this experiential ties within the faith. And we see these experiential ties come out in little snippets. You see it at camp. I mean, if you've ever been to camp, and you took a bunch of teenagers to camp. At the last night of camp, there's like this emotional explosion where people are crying, and they're weeping, and they're promising that they'll write, but you don't have to write anymore because there's Facebook, and they're promising all these things, and I'm sitting there thinking, we're all going home on the same bus. Just go by their house. But that happens in all areas of life. That's not just a church thing. Uh, after my junior year in high school, I went to Boy State. Uh, which is a really weird experience altogether. Um, all these boys from all over the state of Oklahoma, you get together and they make you march around. I don't know if they have it in Texas or not. The best part about Boys State is the t-shirts. Uh, I should have bought 50 of them, best undershirts ever, but I didn't, so I'm bitter about it. But we all just march around, and we had to do and we learn about like the legislative system and how all these things work, and you learn about the armed forces. Well, I had been to Christian camp a lot. I'd never been to anything like this, and so on the last night, we kind of have a meeting, a little talk back thing, and all of a sudden, all these guys are like crying. Like, like man, I love you. I'm like, man, I don't know you that well. I mean, <laughs> Bob, Rob, Billy, Buddy. How's it going, buddy? I mean, and they're like crying, like, man, I'm all right. And some guys are saying, because of this experience, I'm going to serve in the military. And I'm like, you know, the military is really different than this experience. We have soft serve ice cream. I mean, it's different. There's bullets. I mean, and so all this experience, but this emotional thing, it's we bonded. We had this experience together. We marched and we were in Parrot City. And I'm like, I don't know why they call it Parrot City. And so this experience bonds together. And so everyone feels that. But it's only fully encompassed and fully real when we're bonded together because of the Gospel in Jesus Christ. It is the ultimate experience. And so that means, when I say it's the ultimate experience, that means it's not just intellectual. There is an experiential relationship side to the Gospel that binds people together. It causes you to see people not just as titles, as vice president or intern. It calls you to see people, not just based on their usefulness, do they serve you well. It causes you to see people who are made in the image of God and are loved by God. And so we have to express that love. And that sometimes means we have to take loss. And so he appeals and he says, are people worth more than their usefulness to you? And the answer is yes. Verse 11, it goes on, it says, formerly he was useless. But now he's become useful. And so it says being united in experience and family ties. It's a nature of a relationship and it's only true in the gospel. But the next question we see, number three, are people responsible for the wrong they do, even if God uses it for good? You see, what that says, if you look in verse 15, it, when it goes back, it says, though you may have him back. Um, you know, for good. He's talking about you having back for eternity. No longer a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He's talking about the final status. And so he says there's a status that's at the end that God has blessed that road, that God has used sin to bring around his purpose. But on this end, is he still guilty for it? And the answer is yes. Onesimus had wronged Philemon and he was guilty. He was guilty. He needed to repent. It was wrong. And even if God used it for good, it was still wrong. And so that means this. I mean, if you don't pay your taxes for like 30 years, but then you give your life to Jesus, if the IRS calls you And says, you owe back taxes of an inflated amount that you can't even imagine. You thought they only used it to talk about our nation's deficit. You can't say, no, 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 that Casey's dead. This is the new Casey in Christ. You still owe taxes. But when it appeals to this, it has in the backdrop all these pictures that we see in in, in the New and Old Testament. Uh, Just a few weeks ago in, in Camp Stonegate with the children, we talked about Joseph. You remember that story, Joseph? His his father was doing everything he could to wreck the family. I mean, if you want to wreck your family, pick one kid and let all the other kids know that that one kid's your favorite. It will wreck your family. Some of you are shaking your head. That happened in your family, okay? And so, if you want, he was His father was doing everything he could to wreck the family. So it came to Joseph's birthday. And when everyone had dingy, normal looking clothes, he bought his son, Joseph, a brightly colored jacket as a visual display of our father loves him more. And he added to that visual display why he was walking around with his technicolored dream coat and talking about it culture influences everything why he was walking around talking about it he would say hey i had this dream where all of you guys bow down to me okay if you have younger siblings i just want to ask when your punk younger sibling in his flashy little jacket comes and says you're going to bow down to me what is your response it's what they did death i'm going to kill him So they conspired and they took Joseph and out in the wilderness, they beat him up, took his little precious jacket off and threw him in a cistern and they were going to kill him until Reuben said, why shouldn't we make some money off him? Let's just sell him to slave traders. And so they pulled him out and they sold him for 30 pieces of silver and he was taken to Egypt and he was sold into slavery by his brothers. It was wrong. There he finds himself in Potiphar's house, and he starts to work hard, and he starts to put some character on, and he rises to the top, and there's this section where it describes Joseph like this. He was fine in appearance. Okay, there's only a couple other places in the Bible that describes people as being fine in appearance. When the authoritative Word of God says you are fine in appearance, you are gq and so Potiphar's wife noticed this, and one day, when no one else was around, she grabbed him by the clothes, and she said, come to bed with me, and that's an experience I've never had, but she said, come to bed with me, and he says no, and he fights his way free, I mean, he did the swim move, and he fights his way free, and he escapes her clutches, but he also escapes his clothes, and he runs out without his clothes, which is not a good idea and then later on she's with the other servants and she says this hebrew tried to rape me she lied she wrongfully accused him and he finds himself not only a slave but now in jail what was done to him was wrong and so he's in jail he's forgotten And could you imagine as he's mounting all these wrongs on this side of what his brothers did, he could even put on what my father did. My father did not raise me well. He did this and brought destruction. My brother sold me into slavery. I've been wrongfully accused of rape and now I'm in jail. As time passes, Pharaoh has this this nightmare. And it was these seven fat cows were eaten by seven skinny cows and and they said, hey, there is a Hebrew who can interpret dreams, and he's in jail, and they bring him out. And before Pharaoh, he says, I can't interpret your dream, but God can. And he says, there's going to be seven years of plenty, and then seven years of famine. And the Pharaoh was so impressed that he put him number two in charge to prepare for the coming death. He said, make preparations for the coming death. And so they save, and they save, And through the course of events, when the coming death, when the famine comes, his dreams came true and his brothers were standing before him, bowing low, because it was a life and death situation. He eventually discloses who he is and there's a reunion, but they're fearful that he'll kill them. He says, no, I'm not going to kill you. And they moved the whole family to Egypt, which eventually led to the slavery of the Israelites. The whole family was out in Egypt, but then their father died. And the brothers feared. They said, he's only been nice to us because dad was alive. Now he's surely going to take his revenge. Because they're mounting all these things were done against him. We did all these things to him and we're guilty of it. And he would be just to take it out on us. And they come before him with trembling. And he says this in Genesis 50. What you did, you intended to harm me. But God used it for good, which is the saving of lives. And so if we open up that verse, what, what does that mean? What they did was wrong. It deserves judgment. It's wrong. God can use wrong to bring good. It doesn't make it less wrong. And so are people responsible for the wrong they do if God uses it for good? It's Yes. Yes, they're responsible. And we see this, but it unfolds in Romans 8.28. It says, For we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him and have called according to His purpose. And so there's this backdrop within the Christian faith that our God is a loving Father and He doesn't allow anything to happen that He doesn't reconcile and bring life. And so we have a different lens that we look at this. And so these questions unfold brings us to the fourth question. Can relationships cover serious debt? Can relationships cover serious debt? Look at verse 17. It says this. So if you consider me a partner, if you circled that, it's interesting. He could have said friend. He could have said brother. He could have said a lot of things. But he said a partner. If you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. When he looks at what ties Paul together, what ties Paul together with Philemon? When he looks at that relationship, he says, this is what ties us together. A partnership in the gospel. We have been changed by one. We've been changed by one catalyst. One event has happened that has put us together. And so he says, if you are true in the gospel, if I'm true in the gospel, if we are partners in the gospel, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he's done anything wrong or owes you any charge it to me. And he says, I, Paul, am writing this in my own hand. I will repay it. And then, he says, and then he says this, and we'll unpack this in a second. It says, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do not wish, brothers, that you may have some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ, confident of your obedience. And so when we look at this, how does this relationship cover? First, Philemon has a close relationship with Paul. He says that we are partners. And that close relationship extends beyond it. Because Paul loves Onesimus. And so he asks Philemon, I love Onesimus because of our partnership. Would you love Onesimus the way I now love Onesimus? And so it extends. But see, Paul loves Onesimus because Jesus loves Onesimus. And so the letter, the theme of the letter is there's now relationship together in Christ. And Philemon, I'm asking you to be wronged. I'm asking you to absorb a debt because of the relationship we have in Christ. God still asks that today. God, when we look at this and it says, is there a place that relationships can cover serious debt? The Gospel stands up And in radiance and beauty, it says yes. It says yes. Because our wretched, wretched sin debt is covered because of a relationship. It's completely absorbed in the person of Christ. And so then we have teaching after teaching that comes from Jesus' mouth where He seems to be saying this, because you've been forgiven so much, I now ask you to forgive. But it's a very real debt. In just a moment, we're going to come to a time in worship where we're going to observe uh, the Lord's Supper. And in the Lord's Supper, those two themes rise to the very top, relationship and forgiven debt. And so in the Lord's Supper, we come and we, we see bread. Bread. And the bread represents, as the New Testament instructs us, it represents a broken body. Jesus' body was scourged, beaten, broken for you. And there's a spiritual implication that happened when the weight of our sin fell upon him. It crushed him and he was separated from the Father. He was broken for you. When we come to the communion table, we also see we, we see grape juice. Other places have wine, but we're Baptists and we have grape juice and if you just found out we're Baptists, we're Baptists, by the way. And we have grape juice. And it represents the blood of Jesus that's spilled. See, He absorbed your sin. He paid for it. It was spilled out purchasing you new life into the family. And so does that relationship carry on? It does carry on because Jesus, Hebrews tells us, He now ascended to the right-hand side of the Father. And He sits there and He says this, kind of what Paul was saying to Anisimus, because I love Anisimus. He said to Philemon, because I love Onesimus, will you love him? And so Jesus now looks at the Father and He says, because I forgave them, because I love them, will you love them? And He doesn't plead that we would have mercy upon us. He pleads that there would be justice because the sin debt has been paid. He says, remember my blood that was spilt. I have purchased them. They are now part of the family. They're grafted in. It's done. And so the Gospel loudly proclaims, because of a relationship, great forgiveness and loss can be counted for. Your relationship with Jesus Christ has forwarded you so much. When we talked about the table, we mentioned bread and we mentioned wine. The Lord's Supper in Matthew 26, Jesus uses it and he starts it right there with another tradition that the Old Testament had that was the Passover. Passover. If you remember the imagery of the Passover, what happened on the Passover, where all the plagues came to Egypt to show that God is God, that God is God. And the last plague was the death of the firstborn son. And to escape death of your son, to escape death, a lamb had to be slain. And so at the Passover meal, they had unleavened bread which reminded them that they had to leave Egypt quickly. And they had wine, which celebrated the the banquet that would come at one day. But they also had a slaughtered lamb, and they ate lamb. But in Matthew 26, when they were celebrating the Passover, there was no lamb served on the table, because the Lamb of God was sitting at the table. And they remember John the Baptist's word, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So just with, as you just kind of close your eyes and just sit, the band's going to come and they're going to lead us in worship and there's freedom to contemplate, but this brings us to some very real questions. Because of relationship with Jesus, Your debt has been forgiven. But it puts you in a new relationship with others. It puts you in a new relationship with a world, a lost world. It puts you in a new relationship with the church. That you would now describe people in the church, whether they're here or not whether they look different or the same, whether they're old or whether they're young, whether they vote Republican or Democrat, whether they're white or whether they're black, whether they're rich or whether they're poor, or in this case, whether they're slaves or whether they're masters. It puts them in relationship that we have the same Father. And so sometimes the Gospel comes to you and says, you know what? If we made a list of all the wrong, everyone would look at it and they would say, they owe you. But because of the gospel, God and His Holy Spirit presses, forgive. Forgive. Count it against them no more. But it also brings another if you were here last week, we talked about how you can know good doctrine and you can be emotionally moved and you can be active in service and not be saved. We're saved through a relationship. There's an experiential salvation that happens that is not just quoting creeds, but it happens in your soul. And so as we move to time of worship and the Lord's Supper, the communion tables are open... We ask this, um, we have open communion, which means this, if you love Jesus and you're trusting in Jesus alone for your salvation and you worship Jesus and you're singing to Jesus, that we invite you to experientially take the bread and eat it in a way that is experiential, that reminds us that His body was broken. We invite you to drink the juice, experientially drink it, that reminds you is physical blood that was poured out. These are symbols reminding you if you love Jesus, it's open to you. But here's the other side if, you, if you're unsure and you feel like, I think I have head knowledge, but I, I, I don't think I have a relationship that covers a multitude of sins, we invite you to take Jesus. As we worship around the room, uh, there will be uh, home group leaders and they're there to pray for you. Maybe you need someone to pray for you to help you forgive. It's a very serious wrong. For everyone else, this letter was intellectual. For Philemon, it was flesh and blood. I had to forgive. Maybe for you, it's very real. Or maybe you need to talk to someone. What does it mean to have a, a relationship with Jesus Christ where I trust and treasure Him? They would love to pray with you. Father, Lord, I pray that you'd help us. Just as Paul said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When we come, there's no Lamb on the table. Because the Lamb was slain and rose again. And we do this to remember that He's coming back to bring His family back with Him. And so we celebrate communion. We celebrate that you are coming back, that you died and rose again and ascended into heaven and you now pray for us. And you pray for us as only a family member can pray with passion. You feel it. And so we can trust you. Lord, I pray that you give us clarity about where we stand. I pray that all across the room there would be forgiveness that would happen. I pray that um, questions and bitterness that build would slowly just come undone. And, Lord, as we sing, I pray that the words we sing would be meditations of our heart they would be very, very real. And at times it might be we sit and we pray, but it might be that we stand and we rejoice because the Lamb of God has come and He has taken away the sins of the world. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas.